Hi again, I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer, and you're listening to another episode of the Observer podcast. It's produced by members of the magazine's editorial department, and in each episode, we bring you some of the best stories and interviews from the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors. In the next while, we'll hear from assisted death advocate Sheila Noyes and writer Allison Brooks-Starks. But first, I'd like to share one of my recent observations columns with you. Looking back, I suppose I was becoming a bit of a bore this past winter as I plowed through TuneIn, the first volume of Mark Lewison's epic three-part history of the Beatles. I could not contain my excitement over the trove of revelations in the book's 900 pages. Eventually, I noticed that eyes began to roll as I relayed each new discovery to anyone who would listen. Lewison is the world's leading authority on the four young men from Liverpool whose music changed history. The book follows the Beatles as far as New Year's Eve 1962, as they're on the verge of conquering Britain and then the world. The depth of Lewison's research is staggering. Have you ever wondered about the typeface used on the band's first fan card? It's Gil Sands. Their first suits? Dark blue mohair, single-breasted, three-button with narrow lapels, purchased at an 18% discount. The total number of hours on stage during their first two stints in Hamburg in 1961 and 1962? 918, or the equivalent of 612 90-minute shows. You get the picture. The astonishing amount of detail in the book strips away the layers of myth cloaking the Beatles' narrative and lays bare the compelling reality beneath. This telling does not diminish them. If anything, it makes their journey from rebellious teenage louts to enduring global icons all the more breathtaking. As a journalist, I found the depth of detail exhilarating. As a person, I found it a little unsettling. Dozens of factors coalesce to transform a ragtag combo into world changers. Remove even one tiny piece from the puzzle, and the Beatles likely never happen. If Britain doesn't begin to phase out the national service as the band is starting out, the members likely get conscripted. If Brian Epstein doesn't get arrested in a London morality sting, he probably becomes an actor instead of the band's manager. If George Harrison doesn't make a cheeky crack about producer George Martin's tie, the Beatles' first recording session ends in failure instead of Martin being charmed and willing to give them another try. Contemplating the what-ifs in the Beatles story got me thinking about the serendipity of life generally. So much of what they became turned on chance, just as so much of what we all become turns on little twists of fate. The significance of those seemingly random events is rarely evident at first, but they ripple through our narratives to the end. The missed phone call, the left turn taken instead of the right, the send button hit by mistake. We may be greater than the sum of our parts, but none of us completely controls what those parts are or will be. To a degree, we are all creatures of serendipity. Most of us are reluctant to dwell on this. It's unnerving. So we run to the safety of the bigger picture, the choices we freely make, the things we can control. But we can't hide forever. Inevitably, something forces us to consider the minutiae that have shaped us. As unsettling as it might be, it's also enriching. It's a simultaneous affirmation of our singularity and of our connection to every other thing touched by chance. 
When the Beatles broke up in 1970, I was heartbroken like hundreds of millions of other fans. The anguish was deepened by the sense that there would never be anything like them again. Tune In makes it clear there never could be. The serendipity that helped shape them was too uniquely theirs. There could never be another us either, and we should live accordingly. I became involved 1988 or 1989, probably 1989 I think it was. I wasn't really what you would call politically active for a couple of years, but then I, I became very active. You're listening to Sheila Noyes, a former co-president of Dying with Dignity Canada. For more than 25 years, Noyes has been an advocate for assisted dying. This spring, as the federal government unveiled legislation that would allow assisted dying in Canada, she spoke to Observer contributor Bonnie Scheidel in Thunder Bay, Ontario. People who have been puzzled by what drove me, or what drives me, when they've watched a family member die, I've had so many people say to me, now I understand, I never really knew what dying in Canada meant. Mm -hmm. And it is, it can be horrifying. People can die under absolutely horrifying circumstances. There, there are just so many. Even as we're sitting around the dining room table, if, if we walked into homes and hospitals right across Canada, we would find people who would say they were ready to go and not wanting to linger. My, my mother had a brain aneurysm and Everything that could go wrong after brain surgery went wrong. Mm. Every single thing. And it, it, as a family, we never had the full comprehension of what could happen. And, and maybe that's how we go through life, so that we protect ourselves mm. from knowing this could be truly catastrophic. And it was truly catastrophic. And we brought my mom home, my mom and dad, to be with us. We brought mom out of an extended care unit, despite all the advice of her physicians. She was nursed back to the most remarkable state of health. We took her off all the drugs that she had been on. We, she was surrounded by the love of our, of our family. Our son would go into the bedroom. He, he was at the time two, and he would play cars and trucks with Graham, and she would rearrange her legs on the bed, and he would run his cars and trucks up, up the hills and into the valleys, <laughs> and. My mom could play the piano again, she could converse, she was probably, she was a highly intelligent woman and I, I would say she was where she was. And then she had repeated strokes, mm -hmm. and each stroke took her, and at the end she was completely paralyzed and without speech. And other than the occasional time when, for respite purposes, she was in St. Joe's, um, we kept her at home, and um, we fed her pureed food, we changed her, we, we kept her so clean that she had no, it would be safe to say no physical pain, because there were no bad sores, there was no physical pain. A dentist came into the home to check her teeth, and it was, it was the ultimate in end-of-life care, the absolute ultimate in end-of-life care. She slept in the same bed as my dad after decades of this strong marriage, but when we were alone in the bedroom, the only movement she had was with her right arm. 
and, and, and she would grab my arm and she gave me a signal that made it very clear she wanted me to help her die. Mm. And I remember saying, I will, Mom, I promise, I will. I don't know how, but I'll find a way to help you die. And I never did. But I will be haunted all of my life by the look of pleading in her eyes, all of my life. Sometimes in life, things happen. And, and when I talk this, I know I'm broaching into the faith issue too. But sometimes in life, things happen. And, and because my sister's situation was going to be absolutely as dire as my mother's, absolutely as dire. I mean, to think of my mother paralyzed and without speech, no way to communicate but that one movement with her arm, locked, locked in that body, waiting until death came, waiting until death came. And then to know that my younger sister was going to have a fate almost identical. The difference would be she would have the excruciating pain of cancer. And My sister had asked me if I would help her to die, and I started early. I started in the late 1980s when she was first diagnosed. That was our, our understanding. This goes bad. You help me, please. And I, I remember going to our public library and getting out the Detroit phone book and phoning every Kevorkian in Detroit. And that was a vain attempt. I made some other attempts and they were equally futile. And after my sister died and I had given myself some time to grieve, I started on my, my path. It was just hours before Jackie died and I made a promise to her and it was that I would do, I remember my exact words, I will do everything in my power to work towards a change of laws and I won't stop until the laws change. And Jackie never said a word. She, we just locked eyes. And in that locking of eyes, I knew she was saying, you will, you will, Sheila, you will do this. And, and um, I know one of the things she said to me that was so powerful and that I used when I did my presentations, including a presentation I did to the Senate committee when they were looking at this issue mm -hmm. in 1994 and the report came out in 1995 and I said that my sister said isn't it isn't it absurd that some people think it is morally wrong to allow me to have help to die but morally right to force me to suffer against my will mm -hmm. hard to argue with that Hard to argue with that at all. This is so consistent. It's so consistent with the Christian faith. Um, we were raised in a home with, with really, um, I would say, Christian values. It, it very much, we were brought up in the United Church of Canada. My parents were extremely active in our church. My mom was organist and choir leader, all as a volunteer, even though it was, she did it full time, but she couldn't charge, she couldn't, 
she couldn't bring herself to charge a church to pay her for sharing what she considered to be her gift. Mm -hmm. My dad was on the board. We were so active in the church. But what we learned from, from my parents is to be justice-oriented. And we learned about compassion. And so for me, what is the Christian faith about if it isn't about justice and if it isn't about compassion? And the golden rule, I mean, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto it. Un, unto you is, is, is a foundation for, for most, most Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, they, and in the United Church Creed, we talk about doing justice, seeking justice and resisting evil. And I thought, when we, I would say those words and I, in, in church, and I would think, where is the United Church to take a firm stand? This is an injustice. It is evil to force someone to suffer against their will. That is not too strong a word, whether it's couched in the name of end-of-life care or whatever they want to call it. To force my mother and to force my sister to endure such suffering when two blocks away the vet has exactly what they need. Mm. That would drive me crazy. I would just think, two blocks away the vet has what my mother and my sister need to be freed. And the the certainty that there is some suffering that only death can end is, is something people need to really grasp. I just, uh, I'm still in treatment for an aggressive form of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was diagnosed in 2013 and um, one of the very first things I did was let my family know that I would be going to Switzerland mm-hmm. if this went fast. And course but the Supreme Court of Canada decision hadn't come out yet and I sat the family down and said I will not die a bad death and if this goes south is how I used mm-hmm. it I am going to Switzerland and I want you to come with me and all of them understood because they all knew what has driven me for almost 30 years mm-hmm. I'm now in a, in a very good place I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, it's an aggressive cancer, but it's being treated aggressively. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're all going to go through that final door. Mm-hmm. We all are. And so we should have the right to have that be peaceful, if that is what we want. And there should be, and it will be, it absolutely will be a choice that we will that we will have and we can we can say as far up this path this is as far up the dying path as I'm prepared to go I'm ready now I am driven I am absolutely driven by compassion I'm driven by love I'm and I'm as justice oriented as my mom and dad were Mm -hmm. and I'm driven to seek justice here That was our conversation with Sheila Noyes. She's a member of Westminster United Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. When her interview was recorded, 
she was being treated for an aggressive form of breast cancer. For an entire month in 2014, writer Allison Brooks Starks paddled down the North Saskatchewan River on a solo canoe trek. And what she discovered was the gift of intuition, not to mention the incredible power of nature. Have a listen. On a warm September morning in 2014, I set out in my canoe along the North Saskatchewan River. It was to connect my two homes, paddling from Edmonton to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where I was born. For weeks, I marveled at idyllic spruce forest and rolling prairie. I ate my bannock with the sunrise and read and wrote in my tent in the cool evenings. I had thought of inviting friends but I had much soul work in tow. Grief from a recent breakup, processing to do from the daily grind of work, and life transitions to sort out. So I knew that in order to get back to myself, I needed to go solo. But I never once felt alone. While paddling, eagles watched me from treetops and traced the path of my canoe as I slid by. I swam with sturgeon, surely twice my age. I slipped into my sleeping bag for rest as hundreds of geese honked. I had prepared for this journey in reasoned and practical ways, planning each meal right down to the chewy lemon cookies. What I hadn't prepared for was the lessons the river would teach me, to let go of logic and to embrace intuition. On the first day, the perfectionist in me was vocal, worrying about gear and suggesting I was hauling too much water. I paddled through this mental chatter and diligently followed the map for 30 kilometers. With that accomplished, I promptly pulled to shore for the evening. I looked up the steep bank, feeling uneasy. Nevertheless, I unloaded my gear and dragged it up the hill. Panting from effort, I scanned for a campsite. Society had conditioned me to trust my head, yet I knew in my heart I shouldn't have stopped here. Nothing felt right. I ate my supper with a nervous, empty feeling. Sleeping fitfully, I had a nightmare that a tractor smashed into my camp over and over. In the morning, it felt like a sign when I found a bumper washed ashore. My head was filled with noise and doubt, even though there was very little to worry about. I knew there was no way I could be alone for a whole month if I kept allowing my mind to dominate. I decided I had to release my attachment to making decisions based on thought and logic. I chose my next campsite based on feeling. 
When it was time to pull over next, I tuned into my gut. I forced myself to paddle past a logically ideal camping spot, even as my intellect screamed in protest. You'll regret this. It has a great place to tie up the canoe and driftwood for your fire. It was difficult to resist, but my knowing body pushed my prattling head onward. Turning a big bend in the river, my eyes lit up like nowhere else on my whole route. Big rocks jutted into the river from the boreal side. I felt this was it. Once out of the water and in my temporary home on the rocks, I admired the red veins of strawberry runners creeping across my kitchen. The bright dogwood shrubs framing my tent too. I had left behind the chaotic mind the city had bred in me and found myself in the simple peace of the wilderness. I hadn't packed a swimsuit, but it was so hot on the second day I couldn't wait to dive into the river's brown, tannin-stained waters. I jumped in and splashed around, playing in the current. Naked, I felt powerful. Not vulnerable or exposed, but a part of nature. My skin put me back in the moment, enveloping me in a sense of calm and joy. When I was myself, the woman from the city, I overthought issues of distance covered and of rain-proofing the canoe. My inner child would come up often feeling anxious. I would stop relying on intuition. Yet, when I hit shore, tossed my life jacket into the boat, and stripped my tank top off, I became someone else. I wrote in my journal, I do not feel like myself, yet I feel exactly like me. I feel like I am the woman I am becoming. This woman, so unfamiliar to me, taught me about the ancient feminine. It's a way of being that is largely disregarded in today's Western world. As a feminist, I hesitate to use the word feminine, as this was not about gender. Yin qualities is perhaps a better designation. There is a yin quality, or feminine characteristic, hidden and devalued in the shadow of each yang, or masculine characteristic. I now believe that we live half-lives if we don't explore all sides of the characteristics available to us. The woman I became on the river embodied these concepts. I was at once a free child and a powerful woman. I moved with worth and ease. I laughed with delight at the sight of a mallard or the feeling of mud between my toes. I felt in flow. Near the Saskatchewan border, though, I was reminded that I was really on my own. On day 19, the warm autumn weather ended abruptly. There were strong winds that morning, but I launched anyway. An hour in, the river narrowed unexpectedly, and I lost control. I paddled hard for shore. 
but my canoe, filled with all my gear, maps, and ukulele, suddenly came to a jarring stop. I was mid-river, marooned on a sandbar. I started to cry as I braced myself for the task of pulling my canoe into deeper water. With many waves, I couldn't see if there were more sandbars ahead or if I might step up to my neck in deep water. I was scared and frustrated. I screamed and swore into the wind, but there was no one to hear me. Layered in fleece, raincoat, toque, neck warmer, and mitts, I was no longer the sensual woman on the river. I became rage. This feeling terrified me, and I knew I had to get to shore. Dragging across sandbars and paddling when I could, I finally hit the muddy bank. On the river's edge, I looked at my map and with dread realized I was hours behind. If the weather and sandbars kept up, I wouldn't make it to my hometown. Even though I had done as much emotional work as I had wanted to do on this trip, I was angry I couldn't achieve what I set out to do on the map. Then it started to snow, and I gave up. I decided I would have to call my dad to come pick me up the next morning. Sure, I had failed, but I gave myself freely to it. But the next day... The sky cleared and I paddled onward. And after 28 days, one moon from the day I launched, I leaned on my paddle, which felt as familiar as my own body. And with a final deep stroke, I punched up onto the shore in Prince Albert. This adventure, I learned, was not an uphill battle to be won. Instead, it was a descent a breaking down that ushered in transformation. I saw the reflection of the usual story we tell about a life-changing journey, and I embraced every bit of success and failure wholeheartedly. Alison Brooks Starks is a writer based in Edmonton. She's also an educator who talks to students about LGBTQ issues and the effects of homophobia and transphobia. And yes, she's still in love with canoeing. You've been listening to the Observer podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org, where you can also find links to everything we talked about in this episode. Also, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at uc underscore observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive, and it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, Managing Editor Jocelyn Bell, Senior Editor Kaylee Moore, Associate Editor Shema Benambarak, Intern Elena Gritson, Senior Writer Mike Milne, Art Director Ross Wolford, digital content editor, Kevin Spurgaitis. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. That's it. 
We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the coming months. Talk to you soon. <laughs>